Let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 as we continue our series through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is the passage uh, when Pastor Jimmy spoke last. He said he was really glad he wasn't preaching on this passage. Um, I talked to him about it, and he said it was because he's a great big baby. Uh, that's pretty much what it was. He's a great big baby. He didn't want to, he can't handle the heat. Of, no, the truth is, is that uh, anyone who preaches on this passage, if they're sensitive, right, appropriately sensitive to how people perceive things, and if you want people to understand the truth but not react, you know, superficially to things, this is one of those passages that you want to treat very well. You want to treat all scripture carefully, but this is one of those passages that can trigger people into throwing up their arms and overreacting before they take the time to understand what's really going on. So, let's read it. Let's read it carefully, thoughtfully, and prayerfully. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it, the young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that by your spirit you would help us to understand your word and not to merely come to a proper interpretation of the events and even their meaning, but Lord, help us to respond to your word in faith and in repentance. Lord, we know it's a hard passage, so give us wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Mmm, storms, spooky Scary story. I like, I like scary stories. I like, if you know me, you know I like scary stories. I, I favor the horror genre. And what I find interesting about good horror movies and scary stories is that the best ones always have a much deeper meaning, are always driving at, particular, at specific themes that might not be immediately perceived by people who only partake of it uh, as a consumer. In other words, the best horror stories, though they are scary stories and can be enjoyed superficially, are making a bigger point, a much more sober point. 
For example, uh, Dawn of the Dead, George Romero, anybody? Dawn of the Dead, George Romero? Okay, two, there's two of you. All right, so we're not gonna get into horses because obviously you guys aren't into it, but here's the thing. Uh, George Romero's second zombie movie, Dawn of the Dead, 1978, uh, Great movie, and even he at the time was making the point, listen, this whole thing, it's not really about zombies. I mean, the story is about zombies, and they're in this mall, they're trying to survive. Ultimately, this is about the danger of consumerism. He was telling a story to make a point about the danger of consumeristic ideology and how it impacts our lives. The old Godzilla movies, those were warnings about nuclear threats. You look at uh, 19, what, 79, the Alien movie. Alien, remember the old, who saw Alien? Okay, it's about workers' rights. Look it up, like talk to the directors, talk to the writers. They like to make these important points in their movies where they're driving at deeper themes and messages. Uh, Maybe more recently, uh, Get Out. Anybody saw Get Out? It's about racism. Wow, catch up everybody, that's a really good one. Anyway, it's about racism. Good, scary stories, the best scary stories are always pushing a theme or an idea or a principle or a truth that is much bigger than what the story might suggest upon a superficial reading. And what we are looking at here today is a scary story. Make no doubt about it. Now, when I say it's a scary story, I do not mean that it is merely a story. I definitely do not believe it's fiction. This happened. I'm one of those old-timey Baptists. I believe the book. I believe it happened. And so this scary story is driving a point that is very significant, but oftentimes missed by people who superficially or emotionally react to it too quickly. Because when people look at this passage, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's a lot. And so some people want to dismiss it and be like, eh, you know, it's just, there's not much going on here. I mean, I don't really think God is killing people uh, because they lied. I think they just had a heart attack and it's a coincidence. Don't worry about it. And then, uh, then there are other people that look at this and go, wow, God's killing people because they lie? I'm out. And they want to walk away or run away from the faith. It's not quite that simple, but it does happen. I do not want us to miss the point. So we're going to keep this simple. Right? The main point, as I understand it, in this account is that the holiness of God should produce or promote holiness in the church. Now, even, me, even that statement has to be explained and unpacked because you can take that and run in a wrong direction with it. But hold on to it. The holiness of God should promote holiness in the church. So let's walk through this account here, right? It starts in verse 1 with this couple. They're a part of the church, Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, Ananias, it means uh, the Lord is gracious. That's what his name means. Ananias, the Lord is gracious. Sapphira, it means beautiful. And the significance of those names is zero. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have any impact on the story. I just like knowing that stuff, right? Because there's something about it. It's like, oh, you almost get like a feel for, the, for their culture and where they grew up. And like, okay, well, they, they obviously grew up in families that had, you know, familiarity with, you know, with the Judaic religion in, in some capacity. And now they're a part of the church. They, they really seem to be connected to the church in some real way here because they're bringing an offering to the church to help with others, even though there's a whole lot more going on than just that. So we've got Ananias and Sapphira, and it says in verse uh, 1 that uh, they sold a piece of property. Technically, Ananias sold it, but with his wife's knowledge, she's, they're, they're co-conspirators here. They sold a piece of property. Okay, and we, and we know what that is about, right? Because when Pastor Jimmy preached on this a couple of weeks ago, he was in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, you see the church 
beautifully united together. They are for Jesus. They are for each other. And if there's a need, they take care of it, right? So let's just look at a couple of verses here to give you a sense of what's going on. Where this offering, right, this, this gift is being made, it's reflective but divergent from what we see in chapter 4, verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Right? So, in other words, though we're going to see that people had possessions, they, they maintained possession of their possessions, they did own things, but they didn't hold on to them tightly. If there was a need, they would sell whatever they could to help somebody in the church who had a need. So, this is... This is common. In fact, we have a really good example of this with Barnabas if you jump down to 36 and 37 of chapter 4. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, look at what he did. He sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's what we're seeing here again. Just as as an aside, I just want to back up uh, Pastor Jimmy. uh, Some people actually try to make this work, but it doesn't. So let's just be really clear. This idea of having all things in common was not advocating communism or socialism, okay? Nor does the scripture advocate for capitalism, though I'm for capitalism. The Bible doesn't advocate for that. The Bible's not about that stuff, okay? Clearly, people had property. They owned property. And even Peter makes this point. It was yours when you had it. It was the, 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 the profit was yours after you sold it. You could do what you want with it, but you lie. So it's not about that. This was not a mandatory sort of, of, of giving. It was a practice that was totally voluntary. Now, That's the context here. There's a need. People sell their property. They sell their stuff to help out those who are in need. But there is a lie. There is deceit here. Because it says in verse 2, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they sold the property, which they're allowed to do. He kept back a portion for himself which he's totally allowed to do. That's no, that's no problem. But when he presented the offering, he presented it to the apostles, communicating, hey, I sold my property for X amount of dollars, so here's X amount of dollars. He wants to be perceived as generous. He wants his righteousness to be noticed by others. He is proud and arrogant along with his wife. They are exalting themselves. They are not really helping others. That's what's really happening here. It's not just that they lied. It's that they are engaging in the religion of the Pharisees, those who practice their righteousness in order to be perceived by others as better or worthy. It's not that they want to be good. It's that they want to be perceived as good. That's what's happening. So they do this. They make this offering. It's Ananias at first. And Peter says in verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart? Now, here's what's really happening if we get down into it. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So why is it that you have constructed? Uh, contrived this deed in your heart. You have not lied to man, but to God. So what's really happening here is not that somebody lied. It's not a surprise that people lie. Y'all have lied. Most of you have lied this year. In fact, I'm willing to bet all of you have lied in one way or another this year, at least a few times. 
We lie. If you exa- by the way, exaggerating is lying. Don't pretend it ain't. Anyway, it's not that there was a lie. There was something dramatic happening here. The church has been on fire. It is a brand new thing. People are being converted. The church is unified. There's, there's great work happening. And here is the first inroad that the devil seems to take to get inside the church. Satan is at work in Ananias and Sapphira's lives. Like, Satan wants to wreak havoc in the church. He wants to bring about destruction. He wants to destroy people. He wants to lead people away from the truth. Satan can't just get into the church, right? He gets into the church by getting into our lives. And it's not that Ananias is necessarily possessed as much as it is he is being influenced. Listen, Satan is at work. Satan was at work in Judas's life. We read about it in John 13, 2. Listen. John 13, 2 says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. Judas is responsible for what he did. He's going to answer for what he did. He does. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't influenced. Peter knows this better than anybody because Peter was influenced by the devil to deny Jesus three times. Three times the night of his arrest. You see that in Luke 22, verses 31 through 32, where Jesus says to him, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. So Peter is confronting a man who has been influenced by Satan, and Peter knows it himself. So Satan is at work manipulating, influencing this couple, and they are pretending. They are pretending to love the church. They are pretending to be good for others. Like they, they, they are pretending to deny themselves and to put others first when all the while they are exalting themselves. They, they didn't even do the full work for their own glory. They did half the work, called it all of the work, and even that was all for them. They were motivated by pride. And this is the undoing of our lives when pride begins to lead us and reign. It always leads to ruin. And ultimately, what Peter says here in the second half of verse 4 is, it's not even that you lied to people, which they did. You lied to God. You lied to the Spirit. Like you are pretending to be what you are not. This is why a lot of commentators suggest that these people aren't even believers. They are total imposters. There's arguments that can go both ways. But they are certainly misrepresenting themselves to the church. And they are, by their very actions, lying to God. You see, what they don't understand is what Peter does understand, what David understood. You read about this in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. You know, David, when he is confronted with his sin and he sees the, the impact that it had, I mean, lives have been lost, marriage is destroyed, he's taken advantage of a woman, he's done all this stuff, and when he confesses his sin in Psalm 51, what does he say? He says, against you and you only, O Lord, have I sinned. And that's not because he didn't sin against people. It's because by comparison, it's all against God. Because God is most offended, most aggrieved. David got it. 
Peter understands it. And he's telling Ananias, you have lied to God. And in verses 5 and 6, it, there really is no other way to say this if we're being honest. Judgment comes. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. This death is judgment. We know because of the context, the way it's written about, but even the fact that his burial is one of dishonor. Burial in the first century Jewish Christian context was very important. It had a lot of significance. It was important to have a proper time to mourn, to remember, to reflect, to grieve. It was a communal thing. But homeboy dies, and what do they do? They roll him in the rug, and they take him out back. It's harsh, but that's what they did. He didn't get a typical proper burial. He was judged. Not by Peter. Not by the church. But by God. And the church understood that this was judgment. Because three hours later, his wife shows up. See, the fear of God came upon everybody when, when he died. Ananias died, everybody was like, whoa, God did something here. But it's very quick, it's very new, things are happening quick. Now his wife shows up, Sapphira, three hours later, and in verses 7 through 10, we see that she's really given a chance here. She's given an opportunity to confess, to tell the truth, to come clean. It says, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, hey, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, yeah, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold the feet of those who have buried your husband there at the door, and they will carry you out. Which are some of the darkest words I read in scripture. Those are dark, those are heavy words. Don't read that as Peter celebrating. This is, not, this is not Peter talking like a gangster. This is Peter sober, fearful for her and for her husband. And what happens? Same thing that happened to her husband. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. She fell down at his feet. Peter tells her her fate before it happens. Again, this is how we, one of the reasons we interpret this is judgment. Peter knows you are going to die. And she dropped dead at his feet, which is interesting to put it mildly. Barnabas brought in the gift when he sold a field and he put it where? At the apostles' feet. And then Ananias, when he sold and then pretended to bring it all in, but he really didn't, he put it at the apostles' feet. And now they both have died at the apostles' feet. Where they were supposed to give sacrificially and joyfully, freely, without compulsion, not to any specific number, but instead they wound up giving up their life 
for sin. So what is going on? This is, I'll admit, this is one of those passages where you're like, it seems harsh. It seems harsh. Is it just me? It seems harsh. They lied. Okay. But death? Dead? Like this? It reads, it reads harsh, like a scary story. It is actually scary. And so people struggle with this. And some people like to explain it away. They're like, eh, you know, they just had heart attacks. That's all it was. Uh, first he had a heart, he was in shock. Like, oh my, they know. And he had a heart attack and died. And then she, same thing. She got like, whoo, and then had a heart attack. And then she's dead. And it's, and it's just a coincidence. Okay, we don't know how they died. Uh, it doesn't say that a lightning bolt came from God's throne and just killed them. Uh, could have been a heart attack. It's, not, it, it, it's actually irrelevant, the cause of death, because we know ultimately that behind that is the judgment of God, whether it was a heart attack or not. And I would say, yeah, probably a heart attack. Fell down, breathed or left, sounds like a heart attack. Could also be an aneurysm. Could be a bunch of different things. But God was somehow behind this. Now, so some people want to dismiss it. They, 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 they want to, you know, uh, kind of, they kind of walk it back. They want to explain it away. But other people look at passages like this, this one and passages like it, and they, uh, they don't explain it away. Some of those people will walk away themselves. They look at passages like this because they are hard. Um, they, are, they seem very primitive and very, very unsophisticated and not very progressive. And uh, yes, they're hard and it, it feels ugly. And, and I don't, what do we do with this? And they, they look at this and it doesn't sit right. And instead of going deeper, trying to understand what is really happening here, why is this happening? What is God doing? In frustration and maybe fear, they respond and walk away. It's not just because they read a passage and they walk away, but they, they struggle with knowing what to do with passages like this. I don't want us to be there. I want us to understand this. Keep in mind, I think the principle that is being communicated is that the holiness of God should promote holiness in the church, but there's more than that. First of all, some want to argue like, well, this is like a, like a punitive miracle. And that doesn't seem in keeping with Jesus because when Jesus does miracles, they're always for life and flourishing, you know, except when he curses the fig tree, but whatever. Uh, it doesn't seem like in keeping. And it's like, well, we're not just comparing you know, this act with, with the miracles of Jesus in his ministry of redemption. We are actually looking at all of the miraculous works of God throughout all of scripture. And when you do that, then you see, well, this is not the only time something like this has happened. There are a number of passages, Joshua 7 with Achan, uh, Uzzah, uh, Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 13. Uh, we don't have time to get into all of these, but I, I, I want to give you two examples of this. One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, so you can have a frame of reference. Old Testament and New Testament, in case you're thinking like, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament wouldn't do this. Well, we saw that he just did. Right, but let's let's uh, let's go Old Testament, and maybe you've maybe you're familiar with this uh, Leviticus ten verses one through five. It's what used to be referred to as strange fire, which sounds cooler, uh, but here it's called something else. It's called unauthorized fire. So here here it is. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. So here we have priestly class supposed to be leading in worship, facilitating in worship, worshiping the way God calls them to worship. And what they do is they take their censers and they 
they created a means of worshiping God that God did not authorize. God has specifically told them, here's how I want you to worship me. And they were like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. But check this out. This is going to be hot. Like people are going to like this. It's going to feel good. And so whatever it was, we don't know what it was, but they offered up some unauthorized fire before the Lord. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified, right? He's saying, I'm in your midst. I'm with you. I'm holy. So you're supposed to treat me holy. You're supposed to be holy. But you're not. And what happens to Nadab and Abihu? They wrap them up in their coats, carry them out of the camp and buried them. Does it sound familiar? Yeah. Seems harsh. Seems hard, right? To us, it seems hard. And then you read 1 Corinthians 11. We were in 1 Corinthians 11 for the celebration of the Lord's Supper today. 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is rebuking the church in Corinth because they were beginning to be characterized not only by sexual immorality or the tolerance of sexual immorality. They weren't dealing with it though it was happening in their church, but there was also divisions and racism in their church. People were so divided, they were excluding some people from the meal celebration when they celebrated the Passover at their love feast. And then people were getting wasted at church during the meal. And so judgment began to be experienced in that church context in a unique way. 1 Corinthians 11, 30 through 32, Paul explains like, listen, this is why some of you got sick and this is why some of you have died. Okay. So we've got Old Testament reference, New Testament reference, besides Acts 5, it still feels hard to some people I know. Like, why would... What about second chances? What about, what about God's patience? Okay, so let's take a step back. What do we know? Here's what we know. These events are not the norm. This is not God's normal MO among his people. You step out of line, you get squashed. That's just not how it happens. He doesn't do that. He doesn't strike people dead all the time whenever they sin. There are a handful of situations that we see where something happens that is significant at a particular time in Israel's history or the church's history where there is more happening behind the scenes than we understand and God chooses to act in a very decisive, holy way. So what's going on? Satan was at work. We know that. Seeking to make an inroad to the church to stop the spread of the gospel. We know that Ananias and Sapphira were operating like the world, not like the people of God. They were scheming and lying and exalting themselves while pushing other da others down. They were in it for themselves. They were corrupting the church. And God, in that moment, in the history of redemption, in the history of the church, at that particular moment, God decided to act and take their lives. So let me be really clear about this. God does not owe you your life. The life you have is a gift. God gave me my life and he has the right to take that life. 
especially in light of the fact that I am a sinner and have brought sin and misery into this world. And the consequence of sin is what? Death. That's the curse of sin, death. Even the redeemed will die. Because that covenant of works is one we all broke. So, God is not acting irrationally. He is not acting rashly. But he is acting in a holy and dramatic way. What do we know about God? We know that he is patient and merciful. How patient is he with Israel? How long does he wait? Hundreds and hundreds of years. He's patient with his people. He gives us opportunity to repent over and over and over again. He is a good father, a kind father, but there are certain situations when he has to act decisively to guard his people and to teach them critical doctrines. And here, one of these doctrines is the holiness of God should promote holiness in the church. Did it work? Well, it's always temporal if it works, right? because we might learn something. I unlearn things pretty quick. Like, I can learn something real good. I'm like, I got it. Know it. Boom. Memorize it. Teach it. Preach it. And then go home. Mess it up. It's just like, I can unlearn things. So we can all unlearn things. Uh, we can grow and be sanctified. Experience revival. And then there could be a declension or a spiritual declension. It happens. But they do learn. They do learn because after Ananias' death and after Sapphira's death, what does it say? It says in verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Great fear. This does not mean that, that they were afraid that God was going to strike them dead. It means that they experienced an intensification of awe and honor and respect for God. It means that they understood again. They are reminded God is holy. He is just. He is good. And he dwells with us and we are supposed to reflect him. Listen, you must be holy because I am holy. It says in Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus says you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, right? Now, we are supposed to, to live in the ways of God to reflect his glory. We're made for this purpose. If God is holy, we should be holy. If God dwells within us, we should treat him as holy. And we should be careful with how we live. This kind of fear is not living a a life where we're afraid, but living a life where we are aware, awake. We know. It leads to a better understanding of our calling. You fear the Lord, you know who you are. And that's one of the great gifts. You don't just know who God is. Yes, you get a great picture of who God is. It promotes a fear of him, awe, respect, honor, because now you see who you are in relationship to him. Godliness is the result. So, What's the point? The point is not. I mean, this is you have to figure this out because what do you do with your kids? You're going to tuck your kids at night and go, let me tell you a story about Ananias and Sapphira. My wife grew up in Germany. The stories that they read to her, I would be arrested if I, okay, I, actually, I did tell those same stories to my kids because she, she brought the book with her from Germany. But uh, they, are, they are violent, terrifying stories that they would read to their kids. What do you do to tell them and go, listen, 
if you lie in church, God will kill you. Is that what you do? Is that, is that the moral? Is that what we're supposed to take away from this? That God kills people when they lie? Or maybe if it's just they lie about money. Or maybe if it's they hold back a certain percentage that we're supposed to put in the plate. The point is not that God is gonna cut you down if you lie. The point though is God is holy. He dwells with his people and it matters how we live. We are called to be holy like our heavenly father. Another point is we ought to be on guard for the work of the devil, for the temptations and the allurements of the world. They can creep in. Listen, you don't have to be a Satan worshiper to be, to be led or influenced by the devil. He's smarter than that. We're influenced by so many different things, ideology, philosophy, politics. And you think Satan's not behind those things? You don't think he uses and leverages them? We should be mindful of that. But I'll be honest, I'm grateful for this. When I read this story and I was meditating on what happened in the early church, I was reminded that I am I'm no better than Ananias. My sins are different. I'm not stealing from the church. They won't let me write checks. But they, <laughs> not, allowed, not allowed to write checks. Uh, so like, uh, my sins are different, right? But I'm no better. And maybe you could think of it this way. Ananias is no worse than you. You could say it that way too. Like we're all worthy of God's condemnation. I don't know whether Ananias was a believer or not. I mean, there's, there's weight and value to the arguments on both sides, but I really think it's beside the point. God did what he has the right to do, take the life of somebody that was bringing harm, harm to the church. And he did it to protect the church, to bless his people. Some would even argue by stopping their lives as believers, he prevented them from spiraling, spiraling deeper into sin and brought them to heaven. I don't know. But I know this, I deserve judgment and not just temporal. I have earned death and separation from God. I have earned it. I've done much worse than pretending to give more than I actually give to the church. And I think most of you have as well. And yet, who we know God to truly be is the God who is patient and loving, who loves sinners in spite of our ugliness, not because of it, but in spite of it. We are offensive. We are spiritually ugly, and yet we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God loves us, even loves us as sinners, and saves us, rescues us, redeems us, cleanses us, even purifies us, reforms us, sanctifies us. He changes us. It's real. He does all of that and so much more. He does all of that in the context of bringing people into the kingdom and into the church. It's why he zealously protects it so much. I can't read this story and not feel like that's a dark one. It's still dark. I still think it's, it's a hard one, but it's true. 
I believe it. I don't get to pick and choose what I, well, I do get to pick and choose what I like about scripture. <laughs> I can just decide whether I like it or not. But I don't get to pick and choose what I believe about. I believe the scripture. So now, what am I going to do with it? I want to learn from it. I want to be changed by it. I want to understand God in his holiness, but I also, I also definitely need to understand God in his mercy because in the cross where Jesus died, we see both his holiness and his mercy. We see his justice and his forgiveness. In Christ's death, he suffered the punishment that we deserve for all of our stealing and lying and lusting and raging and for all of it. Jesus died for our sins on that cross and then rose from the dead and ascended into heaven as our Lord. And now we await for his return. He did all of that, yes, for his glory to reflect his holiness, but he also did it for our good that we might share in his holiness. So we don't know a lot about Ananias and Sapphira. And unfortunately, what we do know about them is really embarrassing. It's bad. It's not good. And yet God sometimes uses the bad examples, the worst examples, to show us what to avoid, what to not be, and to see ourselves in those examples so that we might look to Jesus and find the assurance of pardon that we all need. So yeah, the holiness of God should promote holiness in the church, but that only works, that only works if it's not a command of mere responsibility and duty. The holiness of God promotes the holiness in the church only because the Holy One of God, His Son, stands in our place and gives us the grace to continue. My hope is, is that we will all continue to look to Jesus, knowing what we deserve from God and seeing and receiving what he offers us instead, which is life and forgiveness and joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would continue to teach us what we need to know. Lord, I, we all have so much to learn. We all have weaknesses and failures. Lord, would you show us where and how we need to grow and mature. We pray that our faith would be strong, Lord, that, um, that, you would, that you would begin to remove doubt. And we pray, God, that for anyone here who's seeking, who's looking, who's asking questions, Lord, that they would experience the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus said, if you ask, the answer will be given. If you knock, the door will be opened. If you seek, you will find. In Jesus' name, amen.